Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Haggai. We're in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. Be seated. All right. More of Haggai. This is exciting. How you guys doing? Everybody's over here today. Something strange in the class on the other side. Awesome. All right, well, if you haven't been around lately, we have been walking through the, um, the process or the, uh, the history, kind of the story of exile um, in the latter part of the Old Testament. We're in the book of Haggai, which um, is just three books toward the end. So you got Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It's the last three books of the Old Testament. Um, and uh, Jason covered some of what we're going to talk about today um, a few weeks ago when, we, when he was looking at Ezra. Ezra was one of the leaders that came back with one of the kind of uh, bands of returning exiles. Uh, Ezra um, wrote or uh, was written about in the book of Ezra. There was also the book of Nehemiah. Those were once one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. They were kind of the historical aspects of the return um, from exile. Um, and Haggai was one of the prophets at that time, and so what we see today is the word of God to the people um, at a point in their return uh, that is wrought with uh, disappointment and heartbreak. Um, and so um, we're gonna, we get to talk a lot today and next week about disappointment. Um, I got into mostly done with this week, and I realized we needed to break it in half, um, So especially because I've probably preached close to an hour too many times in the last month or so. Uh, my apologies for that. So we're going to break up this section of Haggai into this week and next week, um, and we'll see in a minute exactly how that breakup is going to happen. So um, so I, when I was a kid, I uh, had a distinct pleasure of being part of building an arena. Um, growing up, I played hockey, and I was in this community that kind of had to go other places for our rink. Um, this is Minnesota where pretty much every school district has its own hockey rink, um, indoor hockey rink, if not several indoor hockey rinks. Um, not the case in Florida at all. There's like five in the whole Tampa Bay. So sad. Um, so my school district, because it was small and it was independent, actually did not have its own arena. Um, so we did a lot of outdoor hockey, which is glorious and the way it was meant to be. Um, but we also shared, we also bought ice from other school districts. We went and played at an arena called Columbia Arena um, that was in a neighboring town or also at an arena called Fogarty in a, a nearby town. But Centennial, which is kind of my high school and, I, and my school district um, and my youth hockey club, um, we didn't have our own arena until, I don't even remember how old I was, somewhere around 12 years old or something like that. Um, and so our, our, our high school and our school district and our youth leagues all went in together on fundraising and construction um, to build our own arena. Um, and in order to save money, we had many like kind of festival days where we actually got to go be part 
of the construction process. Um, and so like in a sheet of ice um, on an indoor arena, there are, there are pipes and tubes underneath the ice um, that carry the Freon that keep it frozen, right? Um, and so we actually got to help tie down those pipes and tubes to the uh, rebar that sustains the cement underneath the ice that is then, you know, frozen by that Freon. And so we had the ties. Uh, I don't know if you've ever worked with rebar, but you have, to, you have to tie the rebar together so that when you pour the cement, the rebar doesn't, you know, just get all wobbly in there, but it actually holds its structure. So we had all these ties, and just in groups of hockey teams, we took shifts and we walked, like, weirdly across this rebarred area with pipes underneath there and just had a little tool and kept doing this you know, twisting rebar thing with the pipes. So we actually got to be involved in the building of the, the, the rink. Um, when it snowed before the roof was on, we all came with our shovels and cleared the snow so that the construction team could get back to work. Uh, we're involved in that. Uh, the, the American flag that was on my grandfather's grave because he was a serviceman, that flag was donated to the arena by my grandma and my mom um, and was the flag that was put on the wall um, that we looked at when we sang the American National Anthem. And so we were involved in the building of this arena. And I remember, I mean, it was a ripe, perfect age for me, I mean, like, hockey was everything. Uh, my community was everything. Uh, high school hockey players were like Hollywood movie stars to me, you know? I mean, who else would I want to spend time with than Richie Minnie and Mark McNamara and, you know, Craig Searles? Like, these guys were legends to me. And, you know, this was like everything. Um, and I grew up playing hockey there. I played high school hockey there. Well, I didn't actually play high school hockey. I got kicked out. But anyways, not kicked out. I still wasn't good enough to make the varsity team. Um, but this was like, this was the epicenter of so much of my life. Um, in a fairly direct parallel to our story today, it was my temple. Uh, it was my temple. It was the center of community for me. It was where my friends had jobs and where we all spent extra time. And when you didn't have anything to do, you just went to the rink. Because what else? I mean, hockey. Hello. Um, so it was, it was just absolutely amazing to me. And I don't know if you have this experience with anything in your youth or, or high school or, or your former communities that you used to live in. But if you ever return to them as an adult, they are nothing like what you imagined them to be when you were a child. Um, a couple years ago, I got to go home and go to a high school hockey game with my dad and my brothers. Um, and I remember parking the car, and I, as, a, or as a Floridian now, I didn't have sufficient shoes, so like my feet were legitimately frozen by the time I even got to the rink, because I had like, you know, nothing on, and, and you have to wear boots to survive there. Um, and so we went to the rink. And we sat among, like, some of my old friends or some of the dads of my old friends and all these different people. And I sat in the stands and I watched a high school hockey arena or a high school hockey game. And I looked around me and I'm just like, this is piddly, man. <laughs> like, it's nothing. It's just, it's small and it's nobody and it's insignificant. And it, it, has, it, it has lost all of what formerly was just utter glory to me. Right? Because now I've been to NHL arenas and I've seen, you know, some of the world's best hockey players ever. And just it's just it was like, oh, okay. You know, not to say it wasn't exciting or wonderful, but it definitely didn't live up to what twelve year old Derek thought that arena was. Um, and and in the in the return from exile, the people that had been alive at the time that the former temple existed. Um, they see the reconstruction of the new temple take place, and they move into that very same space. They say, this is nothing. What, I, I, this, what, this used to be so much. Now look at it. It's, it's just so insignificant. The glory that once existed is, is not here anymore. And on some level, it was just simply time and age. And on another level, there was something fundamental that had changed for Israel that had changed about them as a nation and that had changed about the temple, right? But in the middle of finding that those things had utterly changed, God comes to his people through the prophet Haggai and says, I have not changed. I have not changed, right? That's the beauty of the word of God as it comes to these people in Haggai. So let's uh, spend some time here in prayer. Just ask God to prepare our hearts as we look at this passage. Thanks, Father, for 
um, this glorious day. Thanks for calling us your people. Um, thank you for bringing us um, into a place where we can peacefully gather and worship your name, uh, where we can be centered on Christ and his work, where we can unapologetically hold up the glory of God and say it is our chief aim. It is, it is the most ultimate for us. Um, where we do not have to be ashamed, where we do not have to be afraid. Um, and I pray today that as we do kind of look at some of the, the disappointment of the church, uh, just like Israel looked at the disappointment of the temple, God, would you uh, quicken our hearts and, and, and lead us to a place where we see the promises of God are still yes and amen, that you have and are and will fulfill your covenant to your people, that you will be with us, that you are with us even though sometimes we sit and look at something that once we thought was so glorious and now seems as though it is nothing to our eyes. Um, so help us by your spirit today to see and uh, mostly just to understand how central Jesus is to all of this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so here's uh, the prophet Haggai. It says in the seventh month, this is uh, chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. So this is just barely, uh, or just shy of a month after the last time Haggai was with them. The, the interesting thing about the book of Haggai is it's all, it happens all in like three months. Okay, he just, it's all pressed in there in time together. So he comes there, and uh, God says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes. And so at this point, we saw um, last week that, that they had started to build the temple, then they came, uh, they kind of felt resistance, and so Haggai comes to them and says, hey, yo, don't stop. Like, you're building your own house, but you stop building God's house, get back to work, right? God has called you to rebuild this temple. So then they obeyed the voice of the Lord, and the Spirit moved their hearts to obey the voice of the Lord, which is just a beautiful example of what we experience as Christians. We don't obey in our own power. God obeys through us by his Spirit. And so that's what we saw happen last week. So they get back to work. And then Haggai comes, and he's standing around the people, and they're looking at the temple, and they're, they're just utterly disappointed with what they're seeing. They just, they, they can't believe, some of them, rather, cannot believe how unglorious this temple is turning out to be. We get a little bit more of that story by looking back at Ezra. If we look back at Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, show us a glimpse of what happens emotionally to the community when the temple foundation is laid, okay? This just gives us a glimpse at some of the reaction at the, the return to exile. So I'm going to read a couple of verses here. Ezra 3, starting in verse 10, it says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. That's straight out of the Psalms. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, right? So there were people there that rejoiced. There was, there was celebration that did happen. They said, yes, we did it. We started the rebuilding process. But, verse 12, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. Verse 13, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So we have two groups of people responding to this temple restructuring, rebuilding. One group that is so pumped, right? They're like, look at what we've gotten to be a part of. We've been in exile. God hasn't left us. We get to rebuild, and it's so exciting. And then you have these bearded old dudes leaning on their canes, looking at the exact same thing, bawling their eyes out, right? This wasn't a couple guys just kind of whimpering in the corner. This was guttural weeping to the point where you couldn't distinguish between the party people and the sad people, Right? The happy people were just rejoicing, and there was the lament that was going up at the same time, and it sounded the same. I don't know if you've ever heard a lament that's as loud as a party, but that's messed up. That is broken. That is just shattered expectation. 
don't know if you've ever watched men weep either, but it is, it's something about it just causes your soul to sink, right? It's just, if they can be shaken at this moment, then what is really going, right? That's what enters our mind. If they're even shaken right now, what must really be happening here? I remember when I flew home from Springfield, Illinois to Minnesota to marry that girl, and I was on this little puddle jumper, because Springfield is a tiny airport, I was on this little puddle jumper, either to St. Louis or Chicago, I don't remember which one, you flew there first and then could fly to Minneapolis, and I hit turbulence like I'd never experienced in my entire life. And as we hit this turbulence, I'm watching well-dressed business people grab the backs of seats while their knuckles turned white. And I thought to myself, I'm going to die a virgin. <laughs> what in the world is this cruelty, dear God? Right? Because these guys are on planes every week, dang it. If they're losing confidence, what is happening? If they're afraid, oh man, am I afraid. If they are grabbing the backs of seats for fear of losing their lives, right? There's something that shook me at that moment when I looked at the older, confident, established men around me. In this moment, something absolutely deep and painful and, and just guttural is happening in this community when the old men weep, right? And that's where the words of Haggai come in. He says, look at, look at this temple. Is it not as nothing in your eyes, right? Is it not as nothing? When they came back, when they found themselves at peace again, when they began to rebuild their city and their homes and their temple, nothing was like they hoped it would be. This is the experience of the Israelites when they return from exile. And Jay Gordon McConville says that the picture of mitigated celebration here is a small symbol of the whole event of the return, which was in itself a triumph, yet fell far short of the great hopes the people might have had. This little moment is a picture of the great event, right? This small rejoicing mixed with weeping is, is, a, is an image of the, the greater story that's going on for the exiles who had returned. There is much rejoicing, and yet there is much sadness, right? It's this mixed emotional situation going on. And, and to help us kind of pull this into our experience, we need to remember uh, what we talked about the temple representing. So last week we talked a lot about the temple, remembering that, that the temple in the Old Testament was a, a representation of the presence of God among his people. That when the temple was built by Solomon and when the tabernacle existed before the construction of the temple, God would come and show his presence in that place with physical cloud, physical fire, smoke. At the dedication of the, the temple that Solomon built, smoke filled the place so they couldn't even see what was going on. And it was, it was a visible way of seeing that God was there. And the temple also represented to the onlooking nations around them how substantial and powerful and permanent and just imminent God was. When they came to Jerusalem and they looked at the temple, they went, Israel's God is God, right? It was, it was a way that Israel showed to the people around them the absolute splendor and glory of God. And for us, there's two applications for this uh, when we pull it into our modern time and experience, and this is where our sermon splits in two. One of the applications is the mission of God, the representation of God to the nations around them, and the other situation is kind of the home or the identity that the people got from the temple. There was a sense that God was here. There was a sense that we belonged to him. That was felt in the presence of the temple. And also, hey, nations, look on how great our God is. That was a sense that came upon you when you were in the presence of the temple. Okay, so we're going to look at those and split them up. This week, we're going to look at that mission aspect of it, that testimony to the nations. Look how great our God is when you see the greatness of the temple. That's, that's kind of the aspect that we're going to talk about um, today. And so when we, when we talk about that, we, we, we mentioned this last week, that the temple was this visible representation of God's glory, and that when Jesus came, 
Uh, John 1 says that Jesus tabernacled among us. He set up his tent. He was the visible, visible representation of the glory of God. Jesus himself claimed to be the temple. He said, tear the temple down, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. He was speaking of his body. He literally said, I am the temple. Um, Paul and the other New Testament writers look back on Jesus and testify to the fact that he was the actual visible and physical representation of God, that if you want to see God, you look at Jesus. That's what the New Testament writers told us again and again. If you want to see him, that's where you look. And then we talked about when Jesus left. So he dies, he rises, and then he ascends to heaven. When he left, the New Testament people of God, the new covenant people of God, began to understand that they were the body of Jesus and that they were the temple of God. Right? Jesus is our head. We are his body. We, therefore, are now the temple. Right? You individually are the temple. That's one understanding. But we collectively are the temple is a greater and better understanding. Right? That we as God's people are his temple. And we talked about how that's great but also terrifying because when Jesus walked the earth, you could say, if you want to see God, you look at Jesus. Now that Jesus doesn't walk the earth, you're supposed to say, if you want to see God, you look at the church. Ugh. Right? And your stomach just churns. You just go, okay, so number one, that's me. Yikes. Number two, that's us. Yikes. <laughs> Number two, globally, that's us, big C church, us. Yikes. Right? These are terrifying thoughts we talked about last week. Because the church is supposed to be the visible representation of the glory of God. The reason this is so weighty and, and so terrifying and such a heavy thing to wrestle with is because when we look at the church, we see that she is a mess. That's why it's so terrifying. That's how we walk in the shoes of the people rebuilding the temple. There is rejoicing and there is terror. Sadness and fear and just utter disappointment. This is it. This is it. It's kind of where we find ourselves. So I want to talk today about two big ways that we experience the same thing that these elders and priests did when they saw the Temple Foundation. Number one, we experience personal disappointments with the church. And number two, we experience cultural disappointments with the church. So let's start look by looking at the personal disappointment that we have. Um, some of you know my dad was a builder. I did construction, and I worked with him a little bit. And um, one of the things that, that my dad taught me in the midst of not just his business that he ran, but in the midst of his interactions with people in the church was um, how much grace we need to have for the people in the church. Um, one of the things that he left me with, I mean, he taught me a ton about life and work and marriage and friendship, but one of the more important things that I ever heard from him was kind of this idea. He said, he said, listen, the church is full of people. Um, the church is led by people. And people are always a mix of good and bad. They will always let you down if you look to them to be perfect. And people being imperfect is never a good enough reason to abandon them. Before I even said I wanted to pursue ministry or do anything like that, my dad told me these things about the church, that it's just people, that those leaders are just people, right? And that if you put all your stake on them, that's going to be bad. <laughs> it's going to end bad for you. It's going to end bad for them. The expectation that they be perfect because they're church people or because they're church leaders is something that must be dismissed as quickly as humanly possible because we definitely are not perfect. And it's interesting because my dad experienced the hard, difficult reality of walking with broken people. One time he did some work for a pastor, and by the time he was done, the pastor gave him the idea that he had never expected he'd have to pay my dad for the work because they were Christian brothers, right? Like, there was every reason that he had to pull the eject button at that moment to say, you know, expletive this guy and expletive this place, I'm out of here, right? Now, he didn't perfectly manage the situation, but 
He stuck around, right? He endured. He had a great reason to say, up yours, I'm out. And he didn't do that. He had another, another guy in a church had sued him when he was waiting for the man to pay him. So he did another entire job without getting paid. I don't know if you've ever had a dad or mom who's run a business, but you can't really give things away for free and keep running very well. It, it doesn't go great. So again, he didn't handle these things perfect, but the point I'm trying to make is that he had reason to say, I'm out, see you later. And he didn't, right? Like I went to two churches my whole life growing up. Parents went to one that they were a part of as a childhood, as uh, in their childhood, and then when we lived somewhere else, kind of got a little bit difficult, so we ended up moving somewhere to a different church, and that's what they chose to do because they believed that that was the right thing to do. So here's here's kind of a, a nice little reminder for us about our personal experiences with the church. So first off, you you have never, nor do you now, nor will you ever sit next to someone or fellowship with someone or learn and grow beside someone who is not actively a sinner, okay? So this is one of the points in the message where you say, turn to your neighbor on your right and say, you're a sinner. We don't really do that at this church, the whole turn to your neighbor on the right thing, but that's what I would do right now if we did that thing. Just look at him in the eyes, nice deep long gaze and say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we are sinners all. And so this is so important to remember. These are Christian brothers and sisters who you're called to mission with, who are you, you are engaged in, in, in building the temple, right? Like this is the work that God has given us to do. And they're a mess. They're going to sin in word and in deed and in thought, in action and in inaction. They're going to sin. If it's not directly at you, it's going to be very close to you. And this is going to be normal. It is actually the normal experience of all church people for all time. One of the deep tragedies about the fact that we can just so quickly go to another church and it doesn't matter is that we don't endure the sins of others. Right? The average lifespan of a Christian and commitment to a church is two years in this country. Two! Right? That's not even enough time to find out how bad their feet smell. Like, it's not. We don't, we don't endure the sins of others. Why? I don't, I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons, but I assure you, these people near you are sinners. Forgiven sinners, redeemed sinners, reconciled sinners, sinners in the process of sanctification, but sinners nonetheless. And you always will sit in a church with sinners. Remember that. It's disappointing to see people sin, right? It's painful to be sinned against. And that's part of the process of our growth in Christianity that we learn how much grace has been given to us so that then we begin to be the kind of people who extend that grace to others, right? And if that's not disappointing enough, here's an even better truth that you have never, nor do you now, nor will you ever have a pastor who is not a sinner, ever. I wanted to remove the do you now part, but I just couldn't. I, too, sin in word, in deed, in thought, in action, and in action, right? You have the distinct pleasure of witnessing those sins. I have glaring, glaring weaknesses, and so will every pastor you ever have in your entire life, things that they should be able to do better, but they just don't, right? Because they're weak, because they're flawed, right? People that throw the expectations of perfection on pastors, find themselves utterly broken, ruined, and destroyed by their failures, surprised by their failures, when all along they should be kind of expected, right? It's tough. This is the reality of the church that we live in the midst of, not just our current physical local church, but the global church as well. Um, this is the reality of everybody who's ever been in any leadership position in any church, denomination, ministry, um, anywhere. Uh, and it's interesting because sometimes, like, I feel the need to apologize for, like, being a weak sinner, you know? Like, oh, I wish you had a better path. It's like, it's God's grace to you to give you a failing man so that you can follow them. Like, that's his grace to you. Why? So you can see how much grace you've been given. So you can extend the same kind of grace. 
that you can say, hey, man, there but for the grace of God go I too. Like, I, just because I'm strong in this area and you're weak doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means you're weak. Like, I'm weak over here. You just have this beautiful opportunity to own those things and to say that they're true. And so this is personally a really disappointing place to be. We stand before the foundation of a temple and we go, ah, that's not... Right, like whether you're a Christian who's existed as a Christian for a long time, or you're new to the game, or wherever you are in the somewhere along the way, you probably were sold a bill of goods, or you just simply had a different understanding of what this thing was all going to look like, and what it currently is is just so much less than that. And I'm not just talking about a gym and folding chairs; like I'm talking about just all of it. It's just unglorious, right? I try to get up and have coffee and read this thing, and I, uh, you know, I, I, I come and I put these clothes on, and I sit before this guy, and half the time I just fall asleep. I mean, like, I just, uh, it's so unglorious. It's this real disappointing situation, and some of us look back on glory days, and we think, man, I wish it could be like it once was, and we need that reminder that, hey, listen, <laughs> that wasn't the glory. That moment wasn't the glory. Even if it was a beautiful church experience or the leader was better or the chairs were more comfortable or the era was more successful or whatever, like we can look back and we can say, oh, if it only were like that. But man, if we were transported back to then and we were who we are now, we would we'd be like me sitting in that arena. We'd just be like, eh, subpar. It's great. Much to rejoice in, but this isn't the epicenter of the universe, right? This isn't the glorious, most glorious arena that's ever existed. It's just, eh, you know? It's that place over there off that road that bajillions and bajillions of people have never, ever seen before. You know? It's, we have to come to grips with these realities and understand that, yeah, it might be disappointing, and yeah, it might be less than what we imagined it would be, and yeah, these people are sinners. They keep saying that thing or doing that thing or dropping that ball or whatever, right? And it goes on and on and on. It can be really difficult to wrestle with. It's a mixture of rejoicing and weeping, is it not? Oh, thank God for this, and oh, yeah, that is so hard. We abide in this together where sometimes we can't even hear the difference between the two. The bottom line for, for all of this personal disappointment is that if you look to the church to be the thing that brings you deep satisfaction and peace, you won't find it because the church can't do that. But God can. God can. And like Haggai says to them, we'll get to this in a minute, he's there. Even a rinky-dink, disappointing little foundation, he's there. It's glorious, right? So then the cultural disappointment. And listen, this is where when I talk terrifying, it really hits me, right? And I saw a tweet this week where somebody said, man, when I read all the Christians online, I'm terrified. And when I get together with the Christians in my local community, I'm absolutely, like, comforted and it's wonderful right we see the the loud noise and the clamoring sometimes and it just seems overwhelming at what is going on out there and we identify with it because we're followers of Jesus and so we're like it's kind of a gut check and it kind of makes us feel discouraged but I tell you what right here and right now and in many other places at this time there's some really beautiful stuff happening that we need to understand all of that clamoring is not the best place to look, right? Now, this is the part where I tell you, look at your neighbor and say, I'm so glad that you're here, right? Because like, there is just beauty here. There is, there is richness. There is grace being given. There is, you know, and there's so much to rejoice in. But sometimes the idea that we represent God, that freaks me out, man. That we, the church, corporately, and I, I take a lot of digs at American church. I get it. Sometimes I'm a little angry and cynical, but sometimes I'm scared to death, man. I'm scared to death. Sexual scandals, pastors stealing money, you know? It's like, what in the world is going on here? Children being abused at Sunday school? Are you kidding me? Like, this type of stuff, frankly, it's demonic. Like, it is scary that some of these things happen. And we need to own that, and we need to talk about that, and at the place where we can and should, we must address it, absolutely. And still understand that even while it's being addressed, it can't actually be addressed perfectly because the people addressing it are still imperfect people too. Like, it's so, 
ah, like you do what you can and you face it, but sometimes you miss it and people get overlooked and they get hurt. And it's, it's just, it's difficult to look at the church and say to the world, yeah, look at us <laughs> and you'll see God. Ah, sometimes I don't want to say that. And listen, sometimes it is incumbent upon us to tell our friends and our neighbors and our family, no, that isn't it. Well, I'm not perfect, I certainly want to say and call out that that's not it. That people doing that, that's not it, right? That, that there's something different that should be seen in the church. In particular, it's that transparency and honesty and ownership of sin take place, right? Not, not washing stuff or sweeping stuff under the rug, uh, avoiding accountability, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, that we really should be called out. And so we want to seek to be honest about where we at, we, where we are as a church, to own some of these things, to acknowledge that, yeah, these people are failures, and to say, I, I, I is too, you know. Um, but I think in the end, what's incumbent upon us to realize, and I didn't really communicate this last week, uh, because it has more to do with our passage today, is that God is actually glorified in us as we experience his grace and forgiveness for the mess that we're making. That's when the glory of God is pronounced among us, right? Not, hey, look at the church and how she's perfect, but hey, look at the church and how God's gracious to her. Hey, look at the church and see how God's forgiving her. Hey, look at the church and see how God comes and confronts her in her sin and calls her to repentance, and she responds by the power of the Spirit within her. That's when we should say, look at the church. Not look at everything that's perfectly done, but hey, look at we are a different kind of people that are owning our mess, that are saying, God, forgive me, and you forgive me. Right? that are doing what we can at the times that we should to make amends for the mistakes that we create. Right, To take hold of those opportunities and say, no, God is not going to be glorified by us hiding here. God is going to be glorified by, by us being exposed here, by us being opened up to the light, and by us repenting and coming back to the Lord. Amen. And that, 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 that's tough because a lot of the world doesn't understand that, right? And, and we can't always be responsible for it, for that. But we ought to celebrate that we are not the kind of people that are celebrating God's glory among us because we're perfect. We're the kind of people that are celebrating God's glory among us because we're forgiven. Because he's still here. Because he hasn't abandoned us. Because he hasn't rejected us, even though he should. <laughs> right? Even though he should. So we own these things. And we rest in the fact that God's work even in the midst of disappointing circumstances, is still God's work for his glory. And that like the end of our passage says, he will one day fill this house with glory again. There's a point in 1 Corinthians where Paul reminds the church what they were. And I don't know if you've ever read through First and Second Corinthians. It's actually two of four letters that were written to that church because it was such a mess it needed four letters. Four. Paul had to write them four times to say, yo, straighten up. Like, messy, 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 messy church, okay? Like, they went to communion, they went to service together, gathered together, had a meal together, and made sure the rich people got more to eat and more to drink to the point where they were drunk, but the poor didn't. That happened at their church. <laughs> Ooh, that's terrifying, right? That's the kind of mess that Corinthians, like, uh, let's not get into it. We'll do that series sometime. Paul says, as a reminder to the people in 1 Corinthians 1.26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Right? You guys weren't a big deal, Paul is saying. There's nothing special about you according to worldly standards, he says. But look at this, verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? This is why we say, don't look at us, look through us. 
Look through us at the God who abides among us, who keeps forgiving us and washing us and cleansing us, who says to us, I'm yours, you're mine, even when you're unfaithful. Look through us. Look at Jesus. Don't look at us and our worldly accomplishments, but look at Jesus who has been everything that we cannot be and have not been. He is the glory of God. God. He is the one who is righteous. He is the one that deserves all of the praise. Let us boast in him. Not by saying, hey, look at how awesome we are, but rather by standing with our hands pointing at him, saying, look how awesome he is, that he endures and he abides, that his grace is here for us in a way that the temple said to the nations, come and behold God. We say to the nations, come and behold God. He will be gracious to you too, like he's been gracious to me, right? Come and join me in the humility of saying, I can't measure up. Come and join me in that. And behold, a glorious God, who even though this thing is sometimes looks like it's in, in disrepair, he is still here, and he still abides. Back to our passage, Haggai 2, verse 4. I love this. The word of the Lord comes to them. So, hey, this is really disappointing, isn't it, guys? <laughs> I hear you crying. I heard it from a mile away, and I came to talk to you because... This stinks, doesn't it? It's not what you thought it was going to be. But, he says, yet now be strong. Hmm. He says that to Zerubbabel, who is kind of from the family of the kings. He says it again, be strong. O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, he's from the family of the priests. And then he says, be strong, all ye people of the land, declares the Lord. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Remember, be strong. Why? Oh, he says, work for I am with you, declares the Lord, so don't stop. Keep on. But why am I with you? I'm with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. God says, listen, this is disappointing. This isn't what you thought it would be. But I want you to be strong and take courage, and here's why. I am exactly the same as the God who brought Moses and the people across the Red Sea. I am the faithful God of the covenant. I have not changed. I will not change. I am here now as you look at this disappointing little church. I am here. Right? This, is, this is one of the things that communion does for us. In the middle of wherever we are, we come and we remember the body and the blood of Jesus. We look back on the faithfulness of God who was there then. And he is here now. It's a way of pulling the past into our current situation and saying, I remember. I remember you were with them. You led them. You protected them. You guided them. You were strong for them. I remember you sent Jesus. He was everything I need. He accomplished my salvation for me. He was turned over as a criminal where I should have been killed. He was killed and said, I remember. So even here, right now, no matter how disappointing the circumstances I'm in, no matter how much of a failure the person to my left or my right or this knucklehead in front of me is, I remember that none of that affects the fact that you are still God. You are still God. You are still here. In the presence of his spirit, it's not a I was with you. It's not a I will be with you. Those are two great promises. But what he says here is I am with you. You see this thing? It leads you to tears because it's so disappointing. I'm here. <laughs> I'm here, child. I'm here, my dear son, my dear daughter. This is a beautiful promise. God just boldly proclaims to the people, the circumstances surrounding you say nothing about my faithfulness. Right? We need that word. The circumstances around us say nothing about the power of God. They say nothing about the presence of God. They say nothing about the enduring faithfulness of God. No matter what we see, even if we're in a coliseum about to be eaten by lions, God is God and he is faithful. 
right? Even if we're comfortable and everything's going right, God is God and he is faithful. Even if we're facing loss and tragedy and sadness, God is God because he is faithful. He was faithful, he will be faithful, and he is right now faithful. He's here. He's here. And it's so beautiful. He says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. This sounds so much like Jesus after the resurrection. Again and again, don't be afraid. Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. I am here. Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Right? Again and again and again. But you died. Wait, but you left. Wait, but it's all going terribly. Wait, but I'm here. Don't be afraid. You look at your future and just tremble. Don't be afraid. You look at your current circumstances, you wonder if anything will ever change. Don't be afraid. My, my spirit, I'm with you here and now. Amen? So when our personal disappointments come, and if they haven't yet, they will. They will. I've said this as many times as I can up here. I will hurt you. I will let you down. If you depend on me, I will disappoint you. It will happen. If it has not happened yet, it will. And you'll have a choice that day. Right? You'll have a choice that day. Just this week, I repented to my wife about people disappointing me in this church. Because you do it too. I love you. Right? We all do it. That whole turn to your neighbor and tell him you're a sinner. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell him, you know, you're a failure too. Because you are too. You'll do it just as much as they do it. This is part of being a Christian is learning how much we need to apply this actually to us first instead of everybody else. Walk away from this church and say, yeah, man, I sure do sit next to a bunch of sinners instead of saying, yeah, man, those people sure do sit next to a sinner. God, that's, that's who I am. I know that's who I am. It, it changes the way that we conduct ourselves. It changes everything about this whole fulfillment going on. And on the cultural level, the corporate level, kind of the, the, the wider global church level, listen, there are a lot of reasons we should grieve and be sad. Absolutely. And there are a lot of reasons when we should, and times when we should speak up and say something. That ought not be. Okay? That, that I'm not at all saying that shouldn't take place. Okay? Sometimes that must take place. Where people who have the right and the opportunity should stand up and say, absolutely not, it's over. Okay? That has to happen sometimes. We can be gracious to failed leaders and tell them that they're forgiven in Jesus and never let them be leaders again. That, that can happen, and maybe sometimes that should happen. Okay, it, it's possible. And it's not casting stones, right? It's just, hey, listen, we need to own it, and it needs to change. Okay, so sometimes that needs to happen, and it can be really, really painful. But even in the midst of that type of corporate, global failure things, we can know God is faithful. And in some of these cases, it's God at work to bring some of that stuff out. And that's hard, too. That's painful, too. But we can know. It's not just once upon a time. It's not just someday in the future. But now, God is with this messy thing. Currently, now, he is living and active and at work among us. <clears throat> Amen. And he will bring us peace. So finally, this last section, Haggai 2, 6 through 9. And we're going to get into this a lot more next week. It says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God makes a promise to them. Listen, you did have hope for this temple. You did have hope for this thing being glorious. It is now in your eyes as though it were nothing. But don't you fret one little bit. One day, there will be more glory here than you could ever imagine. One day, there will be more glory in this house than even that last house that you remember. All those fond memories of that beautiful temple of Solomon, those are going to be just piddly compared to what I will one day do here in this place. Amen. That's the same promise that we have. 
that God, even in the ups and in the downs and in some of the mess and in some of the trepidation and terrifying circumstances, God is building something that one day will far surpass anything we could ever imagine. His glory will fill his people. His glory will be unavoidable. The nations will see and they will know that he is God when they look at his temple, right? It will happen. We can bank on it. As sure as Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven, we can rest assured that he will restore this place. Amen. That's our great hope, that he's doing something and he will finish it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this day of looking at the reality of disappointment in our lives. And we're so grateful for the fact that you have not left us, that you will not leave us, that you do not abandon us, that even in our failure and weakness and sin and brokenness, you remain faithful to us. And God, whether it's our personal experience or just this this greater corporate situation in, in, in the church or whether it's this actual physical local church or, or some other way that we've found this whole thing just to be kind of disappointing. Um, God, would you show us, would you by your spirit remind us that you are here, that your spirit is in our midst and that through some of this unglorious stuff, you are still doing such a glorious thing. You are giving grace to sinners. You are restoring broken people. You are healing wounded souls that, that you are alive just as surely as you brought the people out of Egypt, just as surely as you were with us in the past. You will be with us now. And we have all the reason to look forward to a great glory that is to come. God, help us because sometimes we are. We're filled with fear, confusion, disappointment, brokenness, and sin. Would you reassure us? Might we hear today from your spirit, the words, fear not, for I am with you. We need it, and we love you in Christ's name. Amen.